the first broadcamp person I saw. And I think she's a staff developer at GitHub now. She had an English major at University of Toronto. She did a bootcamp and she was phenomenal. And that's when I first saw like, wow, it doesn't matter. Like she was doing English and then she switched to programming. She's better than me. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and how you can get your first junior developer job. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by Hussein Kayoun, who is going to be your coding career mentor for the next 30 minutes or so. Hussein has more than a decade of experience writing software. He's been a hiring manager and now a staff engineer at Shopify. Hussein is also a bootcamp mentor, helping students feel confident and giving them the advice to get their first coding job. When I say Hussein will be your coding career mentor today, I mean that unfortunately Hussein can't meet with everyone one-on-one, -on -one, but he can join us here on the Scrimba podcast where I've tried my best to ask questions that I think will help you. I had a great time speaking to Hussein and I know you're going to love this episode. We were both so passionate about helping new developers like yourself and I was really impressed by Hussein's thoughtful advice. Being a developer for a decade, he had some fantastic stories to tell, like for example, the one time he started to interview at Facebook and we'll get into that a little bit. All that to come and more on the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. When I was in high school, I was kind of like, you know, that kid that wanted to get high marks to get into university. I worked really hard. I was very good at like math and uh, physics kind of stuff and, you know, the sciences. So I got into engineering naturally from there. I went into electrical engineering, you know, just thought like, okay, it was whatever. Somebody I knew that I respected was doing it and they were doing well in their life. And I thought, hey, I'll do this. In my first year, there was a programming fundamentals course. And this was in the University of Toronto in Canada year. And this program, I didn't know it was like, you know, when they say a program, like university program is, is the best, it just means it's hard for no reason. That's what I realized as well. Essentially, in that course, like, you know, I was doing well in physics and math and stuff like that. But this course just stumped me. Like, I, I didn't know the first thing about programming. I'd never programmed anything in my life. And people were saying things like, hey, you know, recursion this, for loops that. And I had no clue what was going on. On. And the university kind of like the way it works is you have so many courses and things are moving so fast. And if you just like miss a week or two of like catching up, you're going to be left behind. So that's exactly how I felt. I really struggled and everything was on a terminal. Like these days, a lot of times people will teach you JavaScript, a little HTML, CSS, and you kind of like see things on a screen. This was like very much terminal based, like C++ and there was like pointers and all this stuff. And I had no clue what was going on. So safe to say I struggled a lot. It was my worst mark that semester in Fuspite getting a lot of help. And I barely scrape by and that you know to me it was like okay programming i'm not good at this i'm gonna just do well on the other ones and hopefully balance things out so that was my approach <laughs> From there, in my second year, when I had to take like two more programming courses, I said to myself, I kind of like had a shift in mentality based on books and stuff I was reading at the time. And I thought, okay, there's no such thing as being bad at something. Just you have to learn it properly. I spent all my life learning math and physics in school, but I just haven't learned this yet. So with that approach, I really like buckled down and started like learning this and got, you know, fairly good at it. And by second year, it was my highest mark programming. It just kind of like clicked, right? And I wasn't good yet, but I was better, you know? What kind of motivated you to get better at coding? Because you were kind of counting on doing well in the other subjects. It didn't seem at the time like you had a natural aptitude for it. I think that 
I was at the time, you know, reading a bunch of books and listening to stuff. And, and a lot of stuff, to be frank, was like Tony Robbins kind of material. That was kind of like, you're not kind of born bad at something. You kind of like learn to be good at it. And I kind of thought like, oh, you know what? If I learn how to play guitar, I would suck at it. But then if I just practice a lot, I would get better and kind of like got immersed in that kind of like mentality. And I thought, OK, this is just something I have to work on. And that was exactly it. I just had to spend more time learning it. And then eventually it paid off. And what's nice about programming is that like a math problem, a physics problem is kind of like you solve it, it stumps you and eventually look at the solutions. But programming, it's like there's that euphoria when the program actually works, right? And it does what you tell it to do. And that was the ultimate satisfaction when you see that like, you know, the green check marks or just running the way it says it passes all the test cases. And you're like, yes. I'm doing this. That's so interesting to hear from you because I don't have much experience with things like maths and scientific problems. I just kind of assumed it would be a similar feeling, just that, you know, cracking a meaty problem. But now what I'm learning from you is that programming is quite unique in that way. Yeah, at least it felt to me. It's just because like you don't have that unique experience of like hands to keyboard, you know, not knowing what's going on. And when you're a beginner, you just kind of like we get these problems every week and we go into this computer lab and it's like serious, right? And, and you're just kind of like, I don't know if this is going to take me an hour or if this is going to take me 30 hours to solve. And you're kind of just like working with your friends and you're kind of like, oh, but I can't plagiarize. You know, how much do I like take from them? And everybody's trying to be cryptic to each other so that we don't get in trouble <laughs> when you're like talking to each other, like, oh, try this, try that. And at the same time, the language itself is like standing in your way. Like, you know, again, C++ and pointers is like, you got to understand how that kind of works. And, you know, you get like segmentation faults and you're like, what is happening? Right. And, and at the time, you know, you don't know the essentials when they teach you something, right? Like when I teach somebody to prepare for an interview, you know, I say like, do small wins, like literally write a function name and say console.log. Hello, get that small win and then build on that. But what we would do is like, I'd try to write this entire program and press run. And then like, you know, it'd be a hundred lines. And then like, who knows where the problem is? That unique feeling of having something on a screen and, and typing it in. I don't think you can match it with like physics or math and maybe at a lab, but like, and I never enjoyed those labs and, and they're very like expensive kind of labs where you have a very short amount of time, whereas on a computer, as long as you want to spend on that computer. I can't believe that writing like a hundred lines of code before pressing run. But at the same time, I can totally imagine myself doing it before learning this mentality of just focusing on small wins, incrementally building up the program. And then if you have a problem, at least you can solve it where it happened. And it turns out that coding was something you kind of enjoyed, right? Like, I mean, you've gone on to work as a senior and then a staff developer, but I mean, your first exposure to it just wasn't that great. Do you think that the teachers failed you in that respect a little bit? because clearly you were built for programming. Not that you were born a programmer by any means, but clearly it was something that connected with your intrinsic motivation around problem solving. The problem is the professors teaching this are like very, 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 very smart people. Like we can't touch them, the stuff that they know. Like they're geniuses in their field, especially at that university. Maybe there's this disconnect between teaching people things and them understanding it. Because, you know, they're just used to like all these students coming in every year and, you know, they, they understand that just some people are going to get left behind. But like learning how to learn in programming specifically and like learning how to learn is hard enough, but learning how to learn in programming is like maybe something they can like talk about or, or focus on. Because what I think is happening is if you don't have that mentality shift, a lot of people I knew just focus exclusively on electrical engineering or just quit out of the program and said like, yeah, this programming stuff is killing me. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. So they end up going in, in a different career path because they're kind of scared. And I don't blame them because as a kid, it's terrifying. You mask all of it and just like, you know, university, you're cool, this, whatever. But secretly, you're terrified those whole four years about what's going to happen after those four years. And, uh, you know, the professors, maybe there's a disconnect there. But the university in itself, like the system is all about like, hey, 
let's churn through as many people as we can. And whoever makes it, makes it. Whoever doesn't, doesn't. And you just either sink or swim. That's the, I think, the university mentality. Whereas like I see in Canada, you know, in America, they call them community colleges. In Canada, we call them a college, which is like a two-year kind of program. And maybe you don't get a degree. I looked at material there and I loved it way more. And I thought like, hey, a lot of this makes sense and is very concentrated. And maybe I would come out a better developer from that two-year program. <laughs> but at the time, I guess when I graduated 2013, still that stigma was being removed about like having to have a degree in computer science or engineering. Things are changing a lot now, thankfully. But at that time, that could have limited you. At the end, I don't think the professors, and I don't want to blame them entirely, but the whole system itself is not geared towards helping a beginner. You mentioned Tony Robbins. This is a kind of motivational speaker that sometimes people think is a bit too much. But I think one of the core points there is that you're not born of a fixed mindset. You can always grow. You can always learn. You're not born talented. Hard work creates experience, which then creates knowledge and utility and allows you to get jobs and change your position in life and all these things. I think the fact that so many people listen to motivational speakers and get so much value from it shows how so many of us think we have a fixed mindset or that our past defines what we'll do in the future. But equally, if you haven't been very successful academically before, or maybe you tried a subject like coding and it didn't work for you, it's easy to assume that like, oh, this just isn't for me. But really what you need to do is find a way to like relate to the material differently or find a sort of methodology or an avenue for learning, such as a community college or a boot camp that's going to work for you. But I think you probably agree with saying like this is quite difficult to navigate at times because I feel like people get caught up in the prestige of it. Even in society today, going to... A a community college or like doing a boot camp maybe is seen as like a little bit less than going to school and getting a degree and there's still this whole debate almost like we know we don't need computer science degrees to get jobs as developers but there's still so many like people who might say well you should get a degree anyway because that's something they can't take away from you it will open up doors for you and all these things how do you look at it i think there was some validity to it at the time because like obviously boot camps weren't as popular right and and now you hear a lot of people doing boot camps and community college programs and getting somewhere, right? But before, maybe that was kind of a thing where, you know, you see the job postings and it says you need a degree and they would be insistent on that no matter how much you knew. Now that things are changing, it's a lot better. And we can all see like as a programmer, your experience and what you build matters the most, especially like we're talking about web development. And let's be clear, there's all kinds of software development. That's what cool things I learned in school. Like you could be coding operating systems, chips uh, with like, like digital, like using Verilog, VHDL, graphics uh, programming, embedded systems. There's a lot of programming out there. It is very, very hard. But thankfully, web development is the most popular one. To be honest, I think it's the least complex one, in my opinion, in terms of like complexity itself and being very smart. And that's what I love about with web development. You don't have to have that fundamentals of computer science and so long to like be able to build stuff. That's kind of like, in my opinion, what makes web development so cool is that like you can focus completely on the front end and be a front end master. And maybe over time you develop those like very core computer science skills. But the way computers are these days, I don't think you need to kind of like be very close to the wire, right? Like you don't need to know what a register is and, and all this kind of like assembly code kind of stuff. But in some areas you do. But thankfully, the most popular thing I think that has jobs is web development and you don't need to know it. So I think like that mentality shift and people seeing like what boot camps are producing, like the first boot camp person I saw, and I think she's a staff developer at GitHub now. Uh, she had an English major, which at, at University of Toronto, she did a boot camp and she was phenomenal. And that's when I first saw like, wow, it doesn't matter. Like she was doing English and then she switched to programming. She's better than me. You know what I mean? That was my first exposure. That was around like 2015 where I saw like, okay, like boot camps are serious business.
things are changing. Thankfully, I know some big companies that are saying like bootcamp grads welcome specifically, which I love. Hussein and I will be right back. But first, Jan, we have a favor to ask, don't we? That's right. The best way to support a podcast you like is to share it with someone. And if you share our podcast with someone, we will be really, really, really grateful. If you're enjoying this episode and getting value from it, why not share it with someone who might also get value from it? Be it on Discord, on Twitter, on Facebook, if anybody's still using it, or on LinkedIn, or maybe even in person. If you give us social proof, we will give you a new episode every week. One week we're interviewing an industry expert like Hussein, and another, a recently hired junior developer, so you get to learn from both sides. There's a new show every Tuesday evening, and we haven't skipped a week for like more than a year and a half. <laughs> Whoa. So subscribe to the Screamer podcast wherever you get your podcasts to make sure not to miss it. And now back to the interview. We talk about development, we talk about programming and within the context of like a lot of content online, development, Twitter, podcasts, YouTube, oftentimes we are talking about web development, at least in this space. But development is so broad and there are so many different types of disciplines within programming. And actually, you're absolutely right. Like most companies, they need web developers to add features to their websites or apps and generate more profit, basically, like it's a business at the end of the day. And there are, of course, other disciplines that are a bit more like low level or inherently more complex or would benefit from a computer science degree but your point is absolutely spot on like we have to distinguish between these different types of disciplines because the advice is completely different depending on where you're focusing 100 percent. and uh the cool thing about learning them in university is like you know about these and it's cool but did i need to know about them i don't know there's still kind of that mentality of like i guess people call it gatekeeping or whatever like i made a twitter post and it was kind of just like i thought it would be funny maybe provocative i don't know years i've been a software developer 10 like working as a software developer times that I've used big O notation, zero. And I meant that in the context of work, but I kept this general. And obviously when you keep things like general and short on Twitter, people make assumptions, which is funny and whatever, like whatever happens, happens. And man, some people were very upset. And some people were like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're this, how do you not use big O notation? You use big O notation without thinking about it. You know, and, and my point was kind of like, maybe you use things, but you don't need to know about them. Like for like the biggest example I give is like database indexing. And uh, just quickly about that, like, you know, if you index queries. Maybe define indexing for listeners who are a bit newer to coding. Of course, of course. With database indexing, like when you're looking through things in a database, if you have like millions of rows, maybe if you want to find something in particular and it's at the millionth row, Maybe it's not a good idea to go through every single one of these rows until you reach the millionth one. Maybe there's uh, an easier way you could do it. To give a, a good analogy that I've seen, if the thing you're looking for is on page 600 of a book, the easiest way to find it is to look at, you know, the index of the book, right? And see like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. It's at page 600, as opposed to going through every page and finding it. That's what database indexing is, essentially. There's different ways of indexing something, and some things will will be O of 1, I think, and some things will be, I think it was, it's N log N, depending on the query, and some things will be O of N. And don't call me on this, but those are like kind of situations where there is big O notation being used. But when I use it at work, I just say index this query, and it kind of just happens, right? So at the end of the day, you didn't need to know it. It's there behind the scenes. It's nice to know, right? And that's what I was kind of like getting at, but some people were very upset. And uh, I was surprised and, and just like, it was interesting. Some people were like, how could you be a developer and not use big O notation? You must be just a front end developer. You must be just that. You don't know, you know what I mean? They're trying to like cheapen what you do. And I found that very interesting. And I thought like, 
a lot of people agreed, a lot of people didn't. So it's kind of like there is that kind of like elitism in there. Because if you are, say, for example, you're working at like very big companies where they ask those and it's a requirement to get in, you're going to maybe justify yourself and say, no, no, it is actually necessary. But I don't think it is. So those are just, I guess, maybe going a bit out of a rant here. But that was a very peculiar case of maybe it's not about degrees per se, but it's about elitism and information. I think there's two points that I want to touch on. The first is about Twitter and how it can easily be taken out of context in 280 characters. And the second thing is how I think for many developers, it becomes part of their like identity and they think they're doing a service by like upholding the rigor of programmers and ensuring people use the correct terminology. And like, no, just get on with your life, like solve problems and do the thing because what you're doing is actually gatekeeping and it's not helpful. And I also wanted to touch you saying on your point because I think this is incredibly astute. Oftentimes you're using these fundamental ideas that might stem in computer science. You might learn specifically during a computer science degree. You just don't necessarily know the words for the thing you're doing. But now that you've got some experience and some situational examples of where you might have uh, you might have solved different problems and, and used these underlying concepts, I'm sure you could learn the words for them very easily. And it reminds me a little bit of like spoken language. I will just use English as an example. So if you grow up in a country where you speak English, you end up speaking very, very good English, reading perfect English, but you haven't got a clue about the semantics of the language or how how the rules work necessarily. You just know it all based on experience, intuition, and all these things. And I think in a lot of cases of programming, it's kind of similar, right? That's kind of what you're saying, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so funny because I have a specific example on that. You know, I, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, moving back and forth from Canada to Syria, and it was kind of like learning Arabic. My dad was wanted us to learn Arabic culture and stuff like that. And uh, I remember in school in Syria, which is all Arabic, and there'll be English class, and I'd probably know more than the teacher. But the funny thing is, like, I remember Syrian kids would be like, you know, they were constructing a sentence and they'd be like, okay, so why is it right to say it this way and not right to say it the other way? And I'd just be like, I don't know, but it just doesn't sound right. Yeah, totally. But actually like a Syrian kid, I remember they'd be like, no, well, it's this rule and this rule. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> it's really interesting you mentioned that because I was born in England to English parents, but then when I was a baby almost, we moved to Wales where they teach you Welsh in school. And I was in quite a low grade in English because I just couldn't focus and stuff like that. And meanwhile, there were some like Welsh kids who were in like a better grade, a better set we call it in England of English. And yet I knew that like my English skills were better because I came from an English family and I spoke it all the time, but they were in like the top set. And one time one of them came in and they just asked like, oh, have you a chair we borrow or something? And it was just the most broken English. And I remember thinking, why on earth are they in set one, but I'm in set three? The trouble is like a lot of the time with school and with many things in life, it's about sort of fitting a like square peg and a round hole kind of thing. Like school just did not work for me for so many reasons. I know the traditional paths don't work. And, and I thought I was quite alone in that actually. And it was, you know, not a great feeling as a, as a teenager thinking you're kind of stupid and stuff, but actually as it happens. And one reason I'm so motivated to do this Scrimba podcast is that there are so many people with uh, non-traditional backgrounds or who maybe didn't quite fit the exact path they thought they were meant to take with enormous potential. And so I love doing this podcast because we get to bring it to the surface and talk about how to unlock that potential. But there are still situations like this in the modern coding world. And I'm thinking of job interviews in particular, because we hear about 
about companies. Really fun story, by the way, Hussein. Just last week, I spoke to a self-taught developer. They use Scrimber and they got a job at Amazon. And to get the job at Amazon, they did a thousand LeetGo challenges. In order to produce positive motivation, I used to say to my colleagues that I'm going to work in Amazon. I'm going to do it no matter what one day. What makes uh, best developers? They are very consistent and they're very persistent. I have done 1000 LeetGo challenges. I have to learn how to ask questions and keep on looking for answers. I had to understand what are the developers in big companies like. They focus on the basics and they focus on problem solving. If you haven't heard this episode, I'm linking it in the show notes or you can look for it wherever you're listening to this right now. And as you can imagine, during the Amazon interviews, they were asking leak code-ish type questions. And I actually remember, because I've been following you on a Twitter for a while, uh, you spoke a little bit about how to get a job at Facebook, you have to almost like learn their interview process specifically and the types of challenges they want. And only then can you be successful in the interview. Like you have to specifically practice to do it the Facebook way and then you get a job. And like, I get that a little bit, like maybe they they have their reasons and all these things, but at the same time, it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? But like you almost have to do this test, which might not actually judge and measure your experience so much as your ability to just like do it the way they want you to do it. Yeah, that was very interesting. I'm currently at Shopify. And before I found this job, I did a lot of interviews. I did about uh, 100 hours of technical interviews total. So I was doing a lot. I probably spoke to 30 different companies and probably did like uh, maybe 20 first rounds and then did like 11 on sites, which are like five plus hours and finally settled on uh, a few offers and, and made my choice. But what was interesting was the big ones, the ones that like I know ask lead code questions, for example, Facebook, I went to their like panel, which was kind of like a, an introductory kind of like they have developers there who talk to you about like how to prepare for the interview. And one of the phenomenal things I won't forget was like each one of them had their story about how long they prepared. And it was months, weekends, nights, just like preparing and studying lead code. And I'm thinking like, hey, there is interview preparation. In interviews, you kind of have to, you know, write code faster than you usually do, think on your feet kind of thing and and under a lot of pressure, right, to perform. But then this was all about like textbook kind of problems. And they're like, you have to do these. And you have to do two of them in 40 minutes, 20 minutes each usually. And you have to come up with the optimal solution. You can't do like something that works so that's not the most optimal thing. And you can't run your code. You just have to write it and have to work and you can't run it and test it. It just, this is how we do things. And this is the first like tech, like screen. Like you haven't even done the main interviews yet. So I just found it like, wow, like, what is this? And, and you know, you think about it and you're like, okay, well, they can do this because everybody wants to work there. But at the same time, the nice thing was most companies didn't do this. Only the kind of really big ones that kind of have this kind of thing come up. And uh, the cheat code I found out was like, uh, you know, I did an Uber interview, which I think they asked lead code questions, but I did the front end one and they don't. They were still hard questions, but they were like more suited towards your experience. Like if you have experience and you've built stuff, you can do them. I think Facebook has something similar, but if you're doing pure backend, you're going to have to do these, right? And man, I, I did a lot of lead code questions and I went through the algorithms, but it's just like, you can't learn that stuff. Like I gave myself like a month and still I needed a lot more time. And I would just forget these algorithms as soon as I learned them, like breadth first search, depth first search, dynamic programming. I'm like, I don't know what this is. This is hard. Like this is school again. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. Did they actually make you a better developer or did they make you a better lead coder? Definitely. They make you good at solving those kind of questions. 
They could make you a better developer if you kind of identify where you could use them. I think sometimes I like the one Amazon problem. It's called like a sliding window problem. It's like, well, a lot of people are trying to book meetings in the same room. And how do you kind of manage that? And that's a cool problem because that's actually like maybe practical in that sense. Although I would say you would not run into them that much. And a lot of times there's libraries that abstract that and save you a lot of time. So you just end up using them. And some people do do this stuff from scratch. It's just not most of us. There are programmers who are specifically very good at that. And they will be doing this kind of low-level stuff, but, but not most people. I was recently researching a post on the Scrimba blog about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And I kind of concluded that intrinsic motivation is so pure, it's so clean, it burns long enough for you to stand the test of time and become a successful developer. And intrinsic motivation for people listening is going to be quite simply that you just really enjoy coding, like you find satisfaction in it, you like the possibility of mastering it, and you have your own internal drive and reason why you think learning to code is something worthwhile, maybe so you can work on problems you believe in. And then there are like external factors, which I think some people get into tech for, but they sometimes fail or they sometimes regret it because these aren't really their own internal drivers. They were things like, oh, I want a really high paying job, not necessarily thinking it through, you know, the fact they would have to do the job every day and hopefully enjoy it, but also things like prestige, right? Like it can be quite cool to say you're a developer. It also unlocks opportunities to work at these big fan type companies. And I think when you're describing these kind of like quite hardcore difficult questions I get the vibe that like on one hand they're testing your coding knowledge but actually the reason they want you to do it their way so specifically is because they're kind of like testing if you would be a good culture fit culture comes down to values right and sharing values if you sort of like have the ambition to be able to solve these almost you know they're almost like aerobics like they're just like it's like an exercise more than something pragmatic necessarily or you have the desire to work somewhere where everybody who's there has to like prove that they are like hardcore programmers and stuff like maybe you really belong there right i'm just kind of curious to know what you think like do you think i'm onto something there like do you think it's a little bit to do with testing if you would sort of match the vibe inside the companies as well as their way of doing things or maybe it's just exclusively like a coding challenge that they they for some reason maybe unbeknownst to me because i don't know what they're working on specifically maybe it actually matters to their work i think the conundrum with these kind of questions is the following if you pass these questions, you're likely to be good on the job. Like not, not, it's not guaranteed, but it seems like people who do very well on them end up being a good fit for the job itself and can do things technically. And I think that's what they, that the thing is, it's like, well, why should we look for another way where this way works, even though we are conscious and we know there is somebody who's like very good. And, and the biggest example is, is I think the creator of Homebrew had a tweet one time. Yeah, I know that one. And they got rejected from Google because they couldn't do kind of like whatever kind of question. But, you know, who doesn't use Homebrew? Like I'd get that person in a second. You know that consciously. It's like, okay, we're going to miss out on really great people, but whoever passes this seems to be doing well. Why not just stick to it? That's my opinion on why people particularly stay with this kind of thing. And other people are like, listen, we're not big enough to do this. We can't do this or we think it's wrong, right? So either you think it's wrong or you're just like, I don't think this is the best way to assess a candidate when they're on the job. Because here's what's interesting. As a staff developer now, here's what I realize. There are a lot of developers who come in that are brand new and they're way smarter than me. Like I can admit that. And I tell them you're way smarter than me. But the thing is like programming and just coding is like half the job. When you're, when you're at a job, it's like coding meets business meets people. All those things have to combine. You're working on something that needs to make a profit and people need to use it and they need to like it. And you're doing this in code. Whereas when you're learning yourself, you're just purely coding. 
But when you add those external factors, that's when things become complicated, like like making a decision, like at a big company, like should you have the screen like this? Well, like 5 million people, 100 million people are, might use this kind of thing. That's a big decision when you're going to do something like that. So how do you get alignment on that? Maybe what you're working with involves working with a different system in the same company. And now you have to like talk to those people and understand their system. And you have to like know how to like get in front of those people. And maybe you have an idea yourself and you need to present that. How do you present it to people, right? How do you make sure work gets done on time? Like maybe you're building something on the front end and there's some APIs that need to be adjusted. And if you don't adjust those APIs on time, then this feature won't ship. Like who's managing all that? Like all these things surrounding the actual code you're writing take up sometimes more time than coding. That's the most important part that people like forget about. And like, it's very hard to test that. And that's what experience gives you. And that's why like a lot of times they have interviews about things like, tell me about a system that you built or that you're involved with that things went wrong, right? And then you tell them about all these scars you've built and they go like, oh, okay, this person has seen some stuff. They have this experience and they know how things could go south or things like that. And they can tell us about things ahead of time. So essentially what I'm trying to say is you can be the greatest lead coder of all time, but when software as a business with people using it comes to the forefront, and that is what development is at the end of the day, in my opinion, those skills can help you, but they won't get you to the finish line. And that's when like people who do boot camps, I see start to like really shine because they're like, oh, I've worked with customer service before. I know how to talk to customers. I know how to like manage stakeholders. I know how to do all this stuff. And that's when they like really like, okay, like this actually came in handy and it wasn't just about my technical skills. And that's when all the smart kids in computer science get left behind. That's fascinating. So I guess there's two parts to that. There's like career changers who maybe had a customer facing role before. They might not have much technical know-how yet, but they've dealt with customers a lot. They've had to sort of appreciate business goals and things like that. And they kind of know how things get done in the real world. But I guess a, a bootcamp itself is a highly collaborative experience. And, you know, coming in the gate, you'll have some experience about how to collaborate on software. And maybe if it's a really good bootcamp, you might even work with a stakeholder or something. And that's the kind of experience that can help you shine compared to, say, a really technically brilliant, but maybe not so uh, socially tactical, I guess, computer science graduates. Exactly. And yeah, like, like bootcamp, you know, I don't think it's a perfect way of learning. I think like one interesting thing I've seen is like people who do comp sci, I didn't know this people did this, but they'd finish a degree and they just don't have the confidence to apply for jobs. And they just take a boot camp on top and spend like all this money. And what was interesting is like, after all that, you end up having like a great combination of skills. But like, honestly, I don't recommend it because it's just so time consuming. And in fact, I would try to tell those people like, why are you doing a bootcamp? Just start applying for jobs. Trust me. And they're like, no, I'm not confident yet. I need to build projects. I'm like, okay, well, it's up to you, but I just don't think you need to do it. Right. Whereas a bootcamp can teach you a lot of those things, especially ones that are like in person and you're like building projects together and things like that. And, and, and you'll get like exposure and you're working with people who are working in the industry, uh, which is like a huge thing. At Springboard, for example, I meet with every student 30 minutes a week. And it's not just like sometimes when I look at their code and we talk about what's going on, I give them a lot of examples of like how things can be used at a company, like writing test cases, why you should write test cases when they build things in HTML, you know, how people can interact with them, accessibility, things like that, that are like, you know, important when you start working, but you don't know yet. And as a mentor, I try to make those connections between like what you're working on and how it might be used. And I think like boot camps are very helpful for that. 
traditional learning might not be as helpful. Although there are universities, of course, some of them are catching up and offering these kind of courses. But your idea there with those sessions with the bootcamp students is you're kind of giving them confidence, right? You're like, hey, this thing you're doing, that could actually be used in a production code base more or less today. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you get using something so long and you don't like think about how uh, a beginner might interpret it or, or know about it, right? So you tell them about, for example, using, you know, using Git. Your life is going to be GitHub at companies. Like, like that's going to be a big part of your life, committing things, merge conflicts, things like that. It's not just about saving your code and looking at the history. It's like a whole kind of like an ecosystem that you work within it. And when you're first learning, you're just like learning Git. You're like, what is all this just to save my code? Like, what is this old ancient system? But it's like the backbone of all modern companies. And not everybody uses Git, obviously, but like, you know, GitHub is very popular and, you know, reviewing your, your pull requests and your code and how everything's there, the history. They don't know, for example, I'll tell them like, hey, you look at a new code base, like right now I'm working on something and I'll look at a new code base and I'll see somebody wrote this three years ago. Well, I can look at their changes. I can look at their history. Maybe that gives me access to tickets. I can look at context and I can sometimes those people, if they still work at the company, I can reach out to them. So those are things that Git can do. But, you know, when you're starting out, you don't make that connection. You don't understand that whole picture yet. And that's what I try to like get them to. If they think Git is uh, old fashioned or something, they should try taking SVN or Mercurial or something for a spare. And that'll show them. Just to unwrap things a little bit, because we spoke about quite a few different topics, and then I think we'll take things into another gear in just a second. Um, but I think you're totally correct, by the way. This was a few minutes ago, but your sort of observation, why companies do these quite intense coding, imperfect coding challenges. And the reason is because they can afford to, right? Like they are sort of teasing some of the best compensation packages in the industry. And obviously, Ben, as a new developer, you can look at that and make that your reference point and feel kind of crummy because you're not really there yet. But at the same time, the, the, you know, Facebook and, well, sorry, Meta and Amazon and all these type of man companies, they don't really represent the industry. They're just kind of in our, in our peripheral because they're big and impressive. And uh, when people work there, we tend to recognize that. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of companies and teams hiring developers. And for every sort of layer, for every sort of, if you keep peeling the budget back, right, from the top budget to, to the next top budget, and you get down to more typical budgets for engineering managers and teams have for developers, they actually are faced with a problem. They're like, we need we need developers, but we can't afford to pay a huge amount of money. We're going to have to get creative and we're going to have to find uh, some developers we might otherwise miss. And that's where perhaps they open the doors to like these more accessible coding challenges or maybe investing in a junior that doesn't yet have experience, but shows a lot of potential. I'm not going to break it down in a huge amount of detail, but it's really inspiring, I think, to know that there are companies like that. And as a new developer, you have a lot more prospects than you might realize if you're only sort of aligning yourself by some of the most popular and big companies. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and it's definitely like, I, I can speak for Shopify and how the interview process is uh, at Shopify. And for a developer, like a senior developer, uh, you know, we do uh, pair programming. And this is all like you find on their website. You do pair programming. We don't ask like leak code type questions, right? And, and it's not like your solution isn't the only thing we look at. We look at so many things surrounding you and, and, and like what I like to work with this person. Also, we do something called like a technical deep dive, which is like explaining a previous project. So those are like really cool ways that go around just asking like pure, like, can they solve this really, really hard problem? And at the same time, we have our internships, which is like a way to get into full time work. 
a lot of interns start off and they become full time. And that's like another way of kind of getting in. And and those like I've seen bootcamp grads come through that, you know what I mean? And there's no like gatekeeping there and they end up moving up the ranks and things like that. So I think a lot of big companies are changing the way they do things. And I think like in all the interviews I did, I think Shopify was very much it felt like I was doing things that I would do at work right on the interview. I'll be it was faster, you know, a faster pace. And that's a kind of problem again with interviews is that, you know, it's under pressure with somebody and that, you know, that just takes some practice. And what I tell people to do is don't let that be your first one. Like if you really want that job, don't let that be your first one that you do is the one that you want. Maybe do some other ones about companies. Maybe you're not particularly, maybe you would work there. Maybe you would like not be so disheartened if you didn't get the job and that way, get the ball rolling and learn how to work under pressure a little bit and get into the interview mindset. That's such a top tip, honestly, because if you're maybe feeling nervous about applying for jobs and interviewing, well, now you have no stakes at all. Your only goal is to fail the interview so that you can learn what went wrong and what to do better because you don't want to be learning all these things during the interview for the job that you really, really want. There are a lot of tips like that. And, and for example, I, I tell people like talk, you know, small wins, all this stuff, but nothing beats like, you know, at the end of the day, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So no matter how good you think you are at solving these problems, some people are great lead coders, but like put another person they never met before and put the pressure of the interview and the time and you see them crash. And that's normal because like, you're not used to that. You're not doing that day to day. Like I'm not opening my laptop when I start work and they're like, okay, time question, somebody I don't know, go, right? It's not like that. Unfortunately, that's just how the interviews are because it's really hard to interview a developer, right? And figuring out the right kind of interview and because you can do a take home, but like, for example, I don't do take homes. They just take too long. I'd rather just sit through the pressure of five hours and no, yes or no, than to have to like do a take home for it ends up taking me like 10 hours to get it perfect. And then they could just be like, yeah, not really. Eh. I'm like, why? Why didn't it work? They'd be like, I can't tell you. Sorry. Bye. You know, that, that's, that's a lot of times what ends up happening with take homes, in my, my opinion. So I just don't do take homes as a rule for me. You want that face to face interaction because once you're there, they're going to tell you some feedback. And you know what? It's like it saves me a lot of time. So in the time I did a take home, maybe I could do like two on site interviews, which are like virtual these days. I'm really enjoying this conversation because I think like me, you think a lot about how to help new developers. But the way in which our day to day is different is that, you know, Scrimba is completely uh, course based and a lot of our learning and communication happens asynchronously, but you get to work directly one-on-one -on -one with students at the bootcamp. And that leads me to have a question that I often wondered about, which is for all the advice that we've just spoken about, like apply before you're ready, try and get your foot in the door so you can get feedback so that you can fail and then apply those learnings to the next level. Like this is great advice. But what I've kind of realized is that this advice is only one part of the equation. The other part is like emotional, right? It's like actually having the confidence to do it and sort of fighting your inner voice that might say, you know, intrusive thoughts like, oh, well, if I apply to the job I don't want and I don't even get that one, but how am I going to get the job I really want? And, you know, it's all about mindset and practice and confidence. And I think being inspired since you're talking to students one-on-one -on -one who might be struggling with this same thing, what are some of the things that you've seen that like works for them that helps them get out of their own head and just move in the general direction of their goal, even though it might not be perfect, even though it might be difficult at first? Like what are some of the things that like, I'm just imagining maybe there have been students who really struggled with this, but eventually they cracked it. And I just wonder like what advice you might have shared with them or what patterns you could have identified that we can learn from. Sometimes they just need somebody who's gotten there to tell them that. I think that's a big first step. For example, at Springboard, there's two big capstone projects that you got to do, like like showcase projects. And I tell them after you're done the first one, you can apply for jobs. And they'd be like, no, I have to finish the course. Then I tell them like another thing.
thing. I'm like, a lot of people have finished this course and still haven't found jobs. Think about that for a second. And some people have done it halfway and found jobs. But they need to hear that from me in order to kind of believe it and to start believing that this is possible. Yesterday, I had a person I met with on uh, that platform ADP list, which is great for like, you know, just like a free platform for meeting like people in the industry, highly recommended ADP list. And uh, I met with uh, a guy in and it was kind of like he showed me a project that he was working on. And it was like obviously not done yet. But I told him this is good enough to apply for jobs. And he's like, how? And I was like, OK, even though you haven't made everything work 100 percent, there's enough here. There's like a login system. You can register as a user. You can do a search. You can add new records of, of a person. That's enough for me to see that you can do the fundamentals of this job. And one big thing that they don't realize is like people think like I need to get to the job on day one. I need to be producing at a high level. You know, you know, if you're a junior, that's not what we're expecting. I want to see potential. I could see that you can get there and you have the seeds for that. You have the attitude and you have the, the right amount of skills. Like it's not just the attitude and things like that, which are important. Also, I want to see some like, you know, the some of the fundamentals, but like a senior developer. No, on day one, I expect certain things that I don't expect from a junior developer. So don't worry. We're going to teach you. It's, it's about getting you to that potential. And that's why a lot of times we hire somebody who's a beginner. And a lot of people don't realize that. And they think like, well, I'm just not ready because I don't know this, this and this and this. Like I haven't figured out promises in JavaScript. I'm like, you know how long it took me to figure out promises in JavaScript and how much companies have like probably paid me in salary until I figured them out and they just kind of clicked. And now like I love promises and I love explaining them, but like it took me a while. So it's OK. Like th those are the kind of things that I think like people uh, that I found like struggle with. Why is it that companies are OK hiring people who aren't perfect yet? For example, like I worked at a couple of startups and they just couldn't afford to hire somebody at that level. Right. And other companies, when we've had budget, we've hired only senior developers. That has its own problems. Senior developers, a lot of them are divas and it's very hard to please and they're very hard to manage sometimes. Not in that, that, that they're bad, but it's just like if somebody's so smart, what's the next level for them as a manager? Like I was a manager, like how do you get them to reach that? You sometimes you can't. But with juniors, the path is clearer. And sometimes juniors make senior developers better because like they push them, they ask them questions, right? You know what I mean? And you get less clashing. Sometimes senior developers in a room, you can't get anything done because they have such like different opinions rooted in, in, in a lot of stuff that they just can't agree upon and they build animosity where a junior developer was like, yeah, you want me to make a button? I'll do it. You want me to do this? I'll do it. That's what a junior developer can bring. And seeing them grow is like the best thing ever. Like when you see a junior developer or intern kind of like question you on stuff and figure out like, like when they'd be like, Hussein, what you said there was wrong because of this, I'd be like, yes, you're getting there. And that's the first step. And some of them think like they figured out everything. And that's also kind of like a funny thing. Like sometimes you get like, you think you know everything after like a year, which is interesting because I know there will be a downfall, but I let them experience that. And I'll be like, OK, no, you know, you know everything. Let's see. Go ahead and do it this way. And then they'll see and they'll be like, oh, crap, Hussein was right. And that's what my experience would bring, for example. <laughs> senior developers have their own problems. I love that so much. It's so easy to assume that seniors would be better. But what you're describing is like an ecosystem where you need big fish, you need little fish, you need kale. You need to have everything in equilibrium. Everything needs to be balanced. And junior developers, you're right, they bring so much energy to a team and they remind senior developers, you know, how far they've come. And when a senior developer teaches a junior developer that 
a challenge to uh, explain their own understanding. And maybe that leads to them learning something new because when you teach, you learn twice and that kind of thing. Junior developers are awesome, man, and they're so valuable. And I guess like, okay, in this dream world scenario, you might have a team of incredibly experienced developers, all kind of senior and beyond who collaborate beautifully. But let's be honest, like every team has like a hiring manager or some kind of leader at the helm. And yes, I'm sure they would love that too. But one, they probably can't afford it. And two, based on all kinds of restrictions like geography and all the rest of it, they're just not going to be able to make that happen. It's not about compromising to end up with something less good. It's about finding the value in other things and getting creative with how you structure the team. And I think as a junior developer, if you can showcase your technical ability, yes, but also all the things Hussein said about your communication skills and sort of the way you get in the door and carry yourself and the collaborativeness you bring to the table, I think you have every chance of success. So Hussein, that's all we really have time for today, but thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to share in closing about advice for juniors or anything you're working on? The hardest thing as a junior developer is going to be getting that first job. But just know this one thing. There's three phases that you got to go through. The first phase is the learning phase, and that's going to be very hard. The second phase, which is just as hard, is getting that first job. And the third phase is keeping that job. So all different phases and all different things that you have to learn, but they all build on each other. So just keep in mind that those are the three things I think the phases that you just have to go through. And once you reach a year in your first job, things will dramatically change for you and your life will change. So just keep at it. And I think you could do a lot better in terms of me. You know, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. And uh, I started a YouTube channel a while back. I'm working on a couple of courses, but you know, if you want to just know more about me and kind of my thought process, I, uh, that's kind of like where you can find me. Um, yeah. And uh, happy to be on this podcast, Alex. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, this was really fun. That was Hussein Kayoun. Make sure to check out the show notes for all the ways you can connect with him and also a lot of good resources. For example, he has a course, but he also has a free report with four tips to get your first coding job faster. Again, we're linking all of this in the show notes. If you've reached this point in the podcast, you can also subscribe. We have a new show every Tuesday evening. And if you're feeling extra supportive today, we would also really appreciate if you left us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you're listening to this. If there's an option to leave a rating, please do so. It really helps. We are pretty much a two-person team and we love being able to bring you a new insightful and uplifting episode every week. So thank you for your support. The podcast is hosted by Alex Booker out of London. You can find his Twitter handle in the show notes. And I'm your mildly nomadic producer, Jan, currently recording this in Belgrade, Serbia. Where are you listening from? Mention us on Twitter and let us know. And don't forget to write what have you learned from the podcast. Until then, we will see you next week.